Second John is an interesting book. Second uh, John and Third John uh, are both like the epistle of First John, uh, credited to the apostle. There's some, and I'll go in a minute, who credits it to some guy named the elder. But when all is said and done, throughout the weight of uh, Christian history and the early church fathers, and, and one of the important things about the early church fathers, the guys who were hung around John, you know, some of his disciples and other guys from that first century is that when they talk about who wrote something or who did something, they're probably pretty accurate because they were right there. And uh, they all basically acknowledge that John wrote it, um, it both of the letters. I'm not going to go into a lot of details about all that stuff. It, it's verse 1 says, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also who know the truth. So he talks about being the elder. This makes some to think that this was a different John, a John called the elder. Uh, the word elder uh, is probably not a title, like in an elder of the church. This is not an elder in the church. It's probably just an affectionate way of saying the old man. You know, uh, I, my grandfather uh, used to call him the old man. Uh, in pop, it was a term of affection. Um, I think people refer to me uh, occasionally with, behind my back as the old man around here on my staff. I'm assuming it's a term of affection <laughs> or fear, one or the other, but... but but he was John. He, he was the last apostle standing. He wrote First, Second, Third John. He wrote um, the Apocalypse. He wrote the Gospel. Those are probably the five last books written. He was the guy that uh, you know. He was probably the youngest of the apostles, and he hung around through it all. And so by this time he wrote this, probably in the eighties, early nineties, he was he was the elder. And and so they all know who he is. I mean, everybody knows who John is. And the things that he wrote, he was, he was stationed later in his life, except when he was exiled to Patmos, which was off the coast of, of where, a lot of places where he was. He was in Ephesus for a large part of that time. And being in the letter of Ephesus, he wrote in and around those churches. When he wrote the book of Revelation, and, and this, um, this summer I'm going to teach through the book of Revelation on one night, one night only. Uh, <laughs> I think it's the last Friday of July. And, uh, you know, I'll talk a lot about the historical context, but he wrote to churches that are being persecuted. He wrote to seven churches. I don't care what your view revelation is. If you don't understand it, he wrote to seven churches. And those churches had other churches they shared that stuff to. You're going to miss the whole point, and you're, you're wrong at the end of the day. He wrote to seven churches who were being persecuted by the Romans. He wrote over in Asia Minor. He wrote to Asia Minor. He wrote First um, John. He was in the area of Asia Minor. That's where he lived. That's where he wrote. That's what he did. So we ought to understand this the same way. The chosen lady is, is a, it's a kind of a difficult phrase. It's, it's, it's to the electra, electa, and, uh, and it's, it's, some think it's a, a specific lady. Some think it's, it's just kind of an expression for a local church, probably to a local church. Uh, it's not uncommon. Um, sometimes a hotel could be referred to as the certain lady, a ship as the certain lady. Um, Judaism, you know, is referred to in, in a lot of times uh, as, uh, you know, the virgin of, of, of God. Uh, you know, it's referred to in a, in a feminine form. Um, and so it's, it's not uncommon to do that. We do that. And that, that would make sense, especially considering that probably the church he was writing to... Uh, when he wrote, persecution had started in Asia Minor by the Romans. Domitian had begun to, to, more than any other emperor before him, persecute those who didn't worship him. In Asia Minor, that is Turkey, the area he wrote to, uh, there was heavy persecution of the churches 
when he wrote Revelation, it was apocalyptic literature. That means it's hidden. He wrote in such a way as only they could understand. This would be something similar to that. He wrote to them, to this church, the children, the people who were a part of it. So he wrote to them, he says, whom I love in truth, but not only I, but all those who know the truth. So the key here is about truth. As you go, we go through this little, little book, it's the second uh, third John and third John, two shortest books in the New Testament, shorter than Philemon, shorter than Jude, less than 300 Greek words each, written on one, probably one sheet of paper. Um, the, the, the key thing is he, he's writing about a group of, he's writing to the church because of a group that is being deceptive in their teaching. Some things, it's the, I think it's the Gnostics we talked about with First John, probably too specific. It's, it's, there's a general sense of false teaching coming into that area. You'll see more when I explain it. So the concept of truth becomes important. Clinging to what they know is true. I love you in the truth of the faith, and also all who, who are in the truth know and love you. For the sake, he says in verse 2, of the truth which abides in us will be with us forever. So obviously the fact that he uses the word truth several times in this book, in, tw- in this letter, and twice, or three times, in the first two verses, signify to us that truth is important. This is going to be a letter, as, second, as third John will also, that deals with truth and the importance of what is true. And so then he says, a, a typical greeting in verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace be with us. Uh, will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Very similar to what we see in the epistles of Paul. This is a very standard way of writing a letter to someone, from someone, or from someone to someone. There's usually a greeting. Paul's greetings almost always have grace and peace. John here adds mercy, three fundamental um, characteristics of the Christian faith, three fundamental blessings. We are visited by the grace of God. We have the peace of God. We've experienced the mercy of God. It's with all of us. It's from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Father, once again, in truth and love. So it comes in love and truth. So you see, you get a feel of what this letter is going to be about quickly. And the focus is going to be on Jesus and the truth. Okay? And, and, and so we kind of move in, John kind of writes about something he wrote about a little bit, a lot in First John, I should say, uh, in talking about love in just a minute. He says, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received a commandment to do from the Father. So he says, the children or the followers, some are walking in the truth. Some have maintained a sense of doctrinal righteousness, truthfulness. The, you know, the truth of the Christian faith is important. We, we, we live in a time right now, and I, I, I deal with this a lot on Sunday mornings, not just with those outside the church, say, about our faith or about Christianity that is false, but I have to address more and more what people inside some Christian churches say that are inherently false and not true. There has always been a danger and has always existed false teaching in the church, it, it seems like, though, in our, in our culture in the last 10, 15 years, more of that has crept in in American Christianity than before. And it's becoming a pervasive problem. We have people who have come to our church uh, in, in, in the recent past, and sometimes this year, some last couple of years, because they have been involved in churches where the truth had been so distorted that they felt they could no longer stay. And I get that. And so understanding what is needed in a church and how important truth is, it matters. It's one of the reasons that, you know, we spend a lot of time 
Focusing on the very basic things of faith is what we focus on. Honoring God, helping people come to Christ. Uh, we, we, we keep things in what we believe simple in many ways is to separate us from a lot else that's going on. We don't hide anything. We don't have any crazy beliefs. Uh, we, don't, we don't have any strange doctrines that we teach. Um, yeah, of course, they probably don't think their doctrine is strange either. They would be wrong. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know... <laughs> But, you know, we, we keep things pretty bad. If you look at what we teach, just of the history of, of the Christian faith, it's pretty much right down the line, especially at Baptist life. We don't, we don't, we don't venture off anywhere. And uh, so he says, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm glad that you're walking that way. But not all of them are. Not all of them are. We have received a commandment to do from the Father. So now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. So we, we've talked about that at length with First John. I'll go over all that again, preached on that back last summer from the Gospel of John. Love, love, love one another. This is important because he's going to be dealing with some things, and love helps bring a sense of relational harmony or balance to what's going on. Um, he says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. We saw that all through the uh, epistle of 1 John. This is the commandment, just as you heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it from the beginning of your faith, from the beginning of hearing the message, from the beginning of the gospel, you have heard that you should love. It's what John taught. It's what the apostles taught. It is fundamental to our faith. There is no concept of Christianity without love. Talked about that last week in the message. With that, verse 7 then gets to the heart of the problem, verse 7 through 11. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And this is the deceiver and the antichrist. So he says there are many, not a few, there are many who are deceivers and they've gone into the world. At that time, um, there were not seminaries and Bible schools. There were not Places where you can go and purchase literature and, and buy sets. There were no DVDs and videos. Uh, but what happened is, for churches to grow, people would go out and oftentimes teach, teach them. And, and they would kind of just go out and make the rounds and teach. Um, a lot of times churches were not able to have a lot of people or anybody who had a lot of knowledge a church would start off in a new area. They would be, it would be a group of believers, 10, 15, 20, 25, maybe 30, broken up into house churches. And they, you know, they may not have much in the way of Scripture. They may have some Old Testament. Uh, they'd have some basic teachings of whoever founded it, hopefully if it was Paul or John or Peter or the Apostle or someone connected to them. Um, there would be some bishops arising up at this time. Uh, Clement of Rome would come up. Um, uh, Polycarp would be coming up, and some of these guys would be coming up, you know, uh, Ignatius. Uh, they would be coming up, and they would be solid, and, and a group would form around them. They would serve as a bishop over an area of churches. But, but there were just a lot of places they didn't have a lot. They may have a fragment of here or there of a gospel or of a letter or something that they clung to. And what would happen is guys would come who had a deeper knowledge, and they would come and spend time teaching them, and normally it was pretty good. It was okay. But there also arose a lot of false teachers. If you were to go into a Christian bookstore, uh, like Lifeway used to have, but they don't. They're hard to find, by the way, Christian bookstores. They're, they're, they don't exist anymore. Uh, but you go online. If you were to go online and look, there are a lot of really good books. There are a lot of really bad books. It's hard to know the difference. 
I have people come up to you all the time quoting stuff from books that are lousy. And I don't want, I don't flat get into it. I, I usually, so when you come up and talk to me and start asking me about your stuff, if I just nod and say, yeah, okay, that probably means I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't want to deal with it <laughs> in here. I just don't feel like handling it right now, dealing with it right now because I don't want to get into it. I just go, okay. And I walk away, pray God help them. Uh, if I do that to you, you probably want to schedule an appointment with me so you can ask that question again and I can help you work through it. A lot of that exists. You know, you, I, you, all, everything, you know, Joel Osteen, a lot of junk, Joyce Myers, all that stuff. It's just, it's just junk. Kenneth Hagen, uh, Kenneth Copeland, just on and on and on. And uh, you read that stuff and it's like, man, it, it creeps in to people who believe it can creep into the church. Back then, they traveled. And if you stayed, somebody stayed there a long time, it could be difficult. Now, we have an advantage. We have the Bible. Back then, they didn't have all that. So a guy would stay and teach them. They would be stuck with that. They, they didn't know how to filter it out sometimes. We can filter it out because we have Scripture. And hopefully, you go read the Bible and you filter it out. But they would go in there. So some of them would be led astray. And he says that this is the deceiver. And then notice what he says. This is the Antichrist. And the key to it all was they denied Jesus Christ is coming into the flesh. And by denying that he came in the flesh, they would deny the subsequent doctrines that spun off or came out of that. Told you during the time of 1 John, the Gnostics denied Jesus come in the flesh. I told you repeatedly, and I have repeatedly said, the ultimate test of any belief system or teacher is what do they say about Jesus? What do they believe about the resurrected Christ, the cross, and the key essential doctrines that go with that? Do they take away? Do they add to it? Do they say, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to speak in tongues? Or do they say, yes, you know, the Jesus, but, but Jesus, you know, like Hagen and Copeland and those guys teach, but Jesus was just one of us who achieved the ability to be God. He was, he was, not, he was not originally God come in the flesh like we celebrate at Christian, you, Christmas. You, you, know, do you see, well, yes, Jesus went to the cross, but in going to the cross, he died for everyone, so all of us are safe now. All those things are false. And so you have to begin to work through it. And notice what he says. This is the Antichrist. What is fascinating is how many people really want to learn and know about the Antichrist, and I get it. I don't know how to break this to people, but the word Antichrist is only used in, I think, two, book, two books. First John and Second John. That's it. It's not used in Revelation. The word Antichrist does not appear in the book to which we normally attach it. Paul doesn't use the word Antichrist. He used the word man of lawless, phrase man of lawlessness in Thessalonians. The Antichrist is pictured, when it is used, it is pictured as anyone who is, in the Greek, the word is against Christ. So if you are against Christ, you are Antichrist. I would suggest to you that instead of worrying about the Antichrist at the end, you worry about the Antichrist that are always around us now in terms of false teachers. They are a far greater danger. Now, I understand the book of Revelation, and when you come in July, I will probably explain it in better detail. Oh, probably I will. Unless something happens and I can't. There's always that possibility. But uh, what it talks about in Revelation is the beast. The beast that comes up out of the sea. Then there's a second beast in the land. The beast is Domitian, the emperor who is persecuting the Christians. 
And that's coming out, out of Rome to out of the sea across from Asia Minor over there. The second beast who was in, you know, serving the first beast is the, is the group within Asia Minor that are doing all the persecuting. That's what they talk about. And so that's the, we take the beast and we say that's the Antichrist. And he is an Antichrist. Domitian was an Antichrist because he did not allow the worship of Jesus. It was him. But the words never attached to him. I'm just telling you this because sometimes you've got to be careful what you read. Be careful of the assumptions you make. Be careful of the generalizations. The best thing always to do is to go back to what the scripture says. Now let the scripture say what it says. And, and trust it from there. And so anyone who... So when people come up and say, do you believe in the Antichrist? Yes, I see a bunch of them all the time. Not in church. But... They're all around us. Yeah. Do I believe in someone who is the Antichrist? So anyways, <laughs> there is always a pointing to those and to a one who is particularly evil. But that's not what you have here. You have false teachers. Can you imagine someone thinking they're connected to the Christian church, being called Antichrist, but they are. That's what John says. Listen, if anyone would know, it'd probably be John. I'm probably not going to want to argue against John. I'm not going to argue against Jesus first. Then John, Paul, George, Rinko, those guys either. But, you know, John and Paul, Peter, all of them. I don't, I don't want to argue against them either. John says that there are people who are antichrists who are deceitful, we should, we should follow that. And he says, watch yourselves, that you not lose what you have accomplished, but that you may receive a full award, reward. He's not talking about losing your salvation, but he's talking about losing the fruit of your work. You're working so hard, helping people come to Jesus. So here's the thing. Look at our church. If new people come to Christ, and we've worked hard to get them to come to Christ, and we're trying more people to come to Christ, and then we go teach them heresy, and it all falls apart, we will have lost the fruit, the, what we've accomplished. All that will, will trickle away. That's why we want to teach them what is right, what is correct. We want to help them understand the truth of the faith. We want to be careful about what is out there. Now, let me just say this. That does not mean that we all have to agree on everything. One of the things you may not realize is that I, you know, I get accused of occasionally being a dictator or everything has to be on way, and that's yeah, not really true. But here's what I tell you. I don't care if everybody agrees with me on everything that I believe in faith. I don't care if your view of the end times and my view of the end times are the same. I don't care. I don't care if your friends sit around and say, hey, we believe this and we don't agree with the pastor. That's fine. Do you believe that Jesus is coming again? I do. We're good. I don't care. Whether or not you've version of your understanding of creation is exactly mine. Whether you believe in seven 24-hour periods or seven epic periods of time, I don't care. You believe that God created everything? We're good. We're fine. I don't, I don't care if you're Calvinist or not Calvinist. I get asked that all the time. And, and at first I, I ask, what do you mean by Calvinist? Explain what you mean so I know how to answer your question. I don't care if you're a Calvinist or if you're not a Calvinist. You realize how silly that is? First place, if you believe in predestination... And someone doesn't, why do you care? If you believe in predestination, that don't you believe it was predestined that they not believe in it? 
And if you don't believe in predestination, if you believe in free will, why do you care if someone believes in predestination? Isn't it their free will to make that choice to believe? Aren't you being hypocritical when you say they shouldn't believe that when they made a free choice to do it? I mean, come on. What does that care? That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're, we're not, you know, I, I don't want certain, I, you know, baptism matters, but unless you teach baptismal regeneration, uh, uh, I'm not going to get overly uptight about it. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm just not going to worry about those things. But if you deny that Jesus has come in the flesh or teach something that works against that, then we'll have a problem. And that's what's so important here. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And who abides, and the one who abides in, this, in the teaching, he has both the Father and Son. So, not the ones listening, but the ones who teach heresy are not fathers of Jesus. If you teach something, and, and, and what you teach is that Jesus hadn't come in the flesh, or some variation of it, and you don't abide in the true teaching of Christ, that's the teaching that comes from Christ, the teaching that belongs to Jesus, you don't have God. But if you teach what is right, you have both the Father and the Son. So here's what he says in verse 10 and 11. It's so important. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. And do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deed. Now back then, they didn't stay in hotels. They didn't have any. They had some inns, and the inns were shady joints. I mean, we all get up tight because Jesus, you know, there was no room for him in the inn. It's probably a good thing. Because <laughs> they, were, they were, okay, I had to... I don't know where y'all stay when y'all go places. So I can't use any hotel brands. Debbie and I, once in a while, stayed at a few places when we were younger that we probably wish we had never stayed at. The idea then, back then, is what you did is you would stay in people's homes, and especially in the church. You'd welcome them to your homes. Now, I've gone places before and preached, done revivals and all that. I want to stay at a hotel. I've, been, I've stayed at people's homes. I don't like that. I've stayed in a camper, a motorhome they had, one of them had outside their house in Spokane, Washington. It was freezing cold, you know, and there was no hot water, no heat, lousy cooks. Did a horrible job preaching, I can imagine why. I always prefer to stay in, uh, uh, even if it's not a nice hotel, even if it's only something like a, an Omni or a Doubletree, if it's only one of those lesser, lesser type, a 4C, a lesser hotel, that's fine. I'll stay there. It doesn't have to be fancy. It can be one of those. But back then, they didn't have a choice. And so, if you, he says, welcome, now, welcome into the home could mean that, but it could also mean just in general, if you welcome the deceiver into your congregation, to your home, into your church, he said, you're participating in that. I just realized we don't have to let you out for, uh, to pick up your kids, so if I go over a little bit, that'd be okay. I don't ever get to go over. I may just do that anyways. He said, so if you have someone who teaches what is false, who's not bringing you the right teaching of Jesus, don't receive them. Do not even give them a greeting. Don't welcome them. We should never welcome false teachers to teach. Now, it, it, people say, but what about love? Well, you can love them and not let them teach. This isn't talking about lost people. We always want lost people to come to our church. I mean, if lost people don't come to the church, you know what your church is going to do? It's going to die. There are a lot of churches that don't have any lost people. They're all real small or dying or dead. If you want to grow, you always want lost. You, want, you don't have to have everybody. Not everybody has to agree with everything. But if you're going to teach 
And I'm talking about the fundamentals. I don't, some pe- there, I'm sure there are plenty of people who teach connects groups or Sunday school classes who teach a few things that I wish they wouldn't teach, but that's, I, that's okay. Doesn't have to be that way. But, but you've got to teach the truth. And you have to be careful. One, I'm always careful about who preaches. One of the things that I like about having staff like we have is I don't have to worry about whoever comes up and preaches. It's not that I'm worried about them being, you know, maybe not Christian, but sometimes I've had guys preaching in my church who preach some dumb things and I have to go back and fix it. Like the next week, you know, and all that. So you don't want someone teaching something false or heretical. So don't do it because if you do it, you're contributing, verse 11, to his evil. And so this then is a warning to this church that is being infected by false teaching. That they need to be careful not to allow that false teaching to come. And if it comes, they have, they have to deal with it. Now, um, you see that more and more now happening to churches. Um, it's a struggle. And, and, and you know, I've had, I, I get phone calls Sometimes some lay people about their church and what they're going through, and I'm already very leery because I'm very pro-pastor, and eh, you know, don't, I don't necessarily like it when they call me about the pastor. I, sometimes I have had pastors call me about younger guys, especially about some things that are that are happening that people are teaching. Uh, I've had a, more than one church planner uh, call me about someone who has a wrong belief. What do they? What should they do? You know, they they got a young church, they're trying to grow it. My answer is kick them out quickly. You have a young, fragile church. They're teaching false. Confront them. Give them one shot at it. You're teaching wrong. Repent. You get it, you know, and they disagree. Say, you don't need to go here. And uh, don't, don't hesitate. Love them. Yeah, love them. Well, I love you, so, but I want to love you far away. You don't have to love them close. You can love them at a distance. Sometimes that's nice. But you, you, you see that more and more, and we worry about that more and more. And it is an increasing problem. And one of the things that's so important is that we, as followers of Jesus, you have an obligation to hold me accountable to what I teach. Now, not that you might disagree with one or two things that are of not importance, okay? I know, I, mean, I, I remember when I first stopped wearing, first stopped preaching without a pulpit in Laredo, Texas. Boy, there were some deacons that all fired up angry because I wasn't, you know, preaching the way Jesus did, Paul did. One of them got upset because without a pulpit, what was I going to pound on? I said, come up here. I'll pound on something real quick, knucklehead. I'm going to talk about that. But if I was to teach some crazy idea, if I was, if I was to teach something that you say, whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't sound right. That's not in the Bible. Or that goes, you ought to be concerned. And people ought to, ought to be concerned that I would do that. Now, I... You know, Probably don't have to worry about that with me. I'm, I'm good. If that happens, it's probably a, a mental breakdown or something. But that's always the danger. And sometimes churches have to respond to leadership, sometimes pastoral leadership, which is not leadership, but failure. They have to respond to that and deal with it. It's tough. You're seeing that happen all across our country more and more. People saying, wait, 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 wait. Where did you get that from? That's, that's not, it's not only, it's, it's not about that's not what we grew up on, what we believe growing up. It's not in the scriptures. That's, that's antithetical to scriptures. You have that obligation. Now, you know, like I said, don't, don't just come up and say, I disagree with you about that. Well, that's okay. You're probably wrong. But if I teach something about the incarnation of Christ, that's wrong. If I teach that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, 
you, you need to come say, that's a problem. If I was to deny the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus, whoa, 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 that's wrong. If I was to teach that baptism saves you, or that you can earn your salvation by good works, you, you should be concerned about that. You shouldn't be concerned whether I'm a Calvinist or not a Calvinist. Who cares? You shouldn't be concerned about my, I mean, you should want to know what my view of the end times is, but that shouldn't worry you that i got a different view. Those things don't matter. They don't change. Nobody gets saved by that. So you need to understand what's at stake and why that's important. You have an obligation to hold me accountable. I have an obligation to hold you accountable. It's a two-way street. Remember, I'm just one of you. Verse 12 says this then, though I have many things to write to you. (laughs) You really want to say, though I have many things to write to you, I'm running out of paper, which is probably what was happening. I do not want to do so with paper and ink. That's kind of what, he, what he's saying is, I want to tell you in person, because it's running out of space. But he says, I come, hope to come speak to you face to face, that your joy may be full. He says, I want to come, and I'll speak to you, and i help you deal with this. It's kind of like Paul saying, I'm coming soon. The children of your chosen sister greet you. In other words, there's a sister church that he's writing from. They say, hey. Because all those churches, you know what they were? They were in the same battle together. They had this great enemy. Not just Satan. They had this Roman emperor trying to kill them all, put them out of business. They're struggling. In the midst of all that, they had to make sure that false teaching didn't creep into the church. It's not easy being a Christian back then. It was tough. It was hard. It was physically, their life was in danger. They, some of them didn't know where to turn for help. We have it so much easier today. We have all of the New Testament, all the Old Testament to help us. We have things they didn't have. And we should be thankful for that. And that gives us a greater challenge and call to help people come to Christ. Because we don't have the limitations they had. We have far more advantages. Well, I have a few minutes because we don't have to be. But I want to ask a question. Yes, sir. No, yeah, okay. He's not saying you shouldn't be friendly or nice to people. And he's talking about professional guys who are professionals who come into the church and teach false. They have nothing to do with them. He's not talking about, hey, you know, a guy down the street came and he has some crazy ideas. No, no, no. We have, trust me, on any given Sunday, we have people with some weird ideas come to our church. Some of them are members, true. But he's not talking about that. He's not talking about someone who even has a bad lifestyle. He's not talking about someone who may believe something wrong. We have a lot of people come to our church who believe wrong things. He's talking about the one who teaches it and wants to lead others down that road. That's who you deal with. Just because you come and you may come from a, bad, a rough background and have some crazy teaching and believe some false things, we welcome you and love you. Not you particular. We love you and welcome you, but not your false teaching. Never mind. But he's talking about if you wanted to stand up and begin teaching or, or working in the church, no. We don't do that. And we've had, I've had to deal with that even here about people who wanted to teach or do something. I've had to say, eh, we'll, we'll respectfully pass. 
What else? Anything else? All right. Well, oh, yes, sir. Polycarp, he wrote stuff. A lot of what we have are people quoting Polycarp, like Ignatius quoting Polycarp, uh, who was a student. So that's mostly what we have, are people quoting him. He wrote a lot of stuff. I don't remember how much we have, but what we have are people quoting Polycarp. Most of what you have are people quoting those guys. Their writings didn't survive for the most part. For instance, there's a writing at the end of the first century called the Didache, the Teaching of the Twelve, that deals with a lot of this. We don't have a copy of it. But we have early church fathers quoting it. So we have bits and pieces that we can piece together. And they actually deal with the subject. And so you can put bits and pieces together, know some of what it says, because other church fathers quoted it, but we don't actually have a copy or a fragment of it. Anything else? All right. That's good.